Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. My name is Ryan Dodge. I work at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, and I am in charge of digital engagement at the museum, which is a really fun job, um, and I'm sure we'll get into the details a little bit later. Yeah, now we're doing this, Ryan, I appreciate you you coming on the podcast uh, this evening. Uh, Usually this is recorded inside a very noisy bar, uh, actually inside a studio, which is relatively quiet inside a noisy bar. Uh, but mm-hmm. those people listening will, will sort of hear that this is probably taking place over Skype or the phone. Because um, mm-hmm. it's hard for you and I to to get together. You're you're yeah. you're out in in, uh, in Cambridge? That's right. Yeah, we uh, we moved out here about a year ago and are just loving the, you know, small city, small town life so far. And, and you commute what five hours into Toronto? What is that like? Yeah, um, it's uh, you know um, it's it's quite a hike. Um, but uh, we you know we we have three kids now. Yeah. So um, and we're living out in Scarborough, um, as you know. Uh-huh. And um, and we were renting, and it just you know it, it came time to, to to purchase a property, and we didn't. Uh, you know, we, we were looking around, and my sister lives out here, and, and um, you know, we could get a lot more house for, for you know, for the price out here. So, oh, for sure. Um, you know, I, I decided to make that sacrifice and, and you know, give my kids a, back, a nice big backyard, and, um, you know, it's great so far. Um, the commute is a little long, but you know what? I can actually get a lot of work done. Yeah. Um, because I'm uh, not doing the drive myself, so... Mm-hmm. I either, you know, will drive to, to the GO train and then sit on the GO train for an hour and, and get some work done. Um, or my parents work at the airport. So sometimes I, I drive in with them and then take the app and then the TTC over. So it's I, I've made it work. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty uh, pretty productive on my, on my commute. So it's not too bad. I take a lot of calls on my commute sometimes. Wow. Um, because uh, I do, uh, on top of my ROM work, I do a lot of stuff on the side as well. So, yeah, we'll talk about um, that as well. Yeah, yeah so, so it's been good. And, and I mean, it's a, you know, it's a lot quieter out here. Um, you know, the restaurants, there's, there's not many good restaurants. Okay. Um, but, but, you know, like we, you know, we used to live on the, on the Danforth. So, oh. um, you know, we, we missed. Uh, Hard we to compare. Greek, Greek yeah. So, so, um, but, you know, it's up and coming and, and there's lots of, lots of good stuff happening downtown. There's a great library and art gallery um, called the Idea Exchange. Um, and they're building a new space with a maker space and, huh. and uh, yeah, really cool old historic building that they're redoing. So, yeah, there's lots of, there's a, there's a fashion history museum um, as well. So there's lots of fun stuff happening in Cambridge. That is cool. Yeah, I, I can't imagine having to do that commute. Um, you know, no late no late nights. It's uh it, it must it must be like a different just that waking up early. It's almost like you're a a morning radio man. You know? it, yeah, it kind of feels like that. Like I'm, I don't know if I'm up as early as those guys, but yeah. Um I'm definitely and, and you know, this is it's my decision. Like I want to be Sure. Uh, family family's really important to me, so I want to yeah. be home for dinner and 
and bed and bath time and stuff. So, yeah. um, you know, I'll, I'll get up a few hours early and, and come in. And I'm only doing it four days a week, so I work from home one day one day a week. Oh, that's fantastic. That's, yeah, it's not too bad. There you go. There you go. And and I'll be the you know the first but not the last to say you do some amazing work at the Royal Ontario Museum. So I'm sure that they were uh, happy to accommodate someone like yourself. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's a, it's a fun place to work. And my boss Cheryl Frazier, she's she's an amazing boss, an amazing person. And and uh, you know the the reality is um, in these days that uh, we can do our jobs from anywhere. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much working 24 seven when I'm not, you know, when I'm not sleeping, obviously, but, yeah. um, you know, we're never too far away from our emails and, and from our, our different social media accounts. So, True. um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a new, you know, new way of working. And, and I'm glad that my, that Cheryl is, uh, is okay with that. Nice. Good stuff. Well, let's sort of start back, you know, you, you, you've got, uh, one of the, uh, uh, you know, more cooler jobs in, in, in digital, I would say. Um, but you, you I, I don't know if it, if it started there, but you're, let's go back to, you know, your, your schooling, your education. Um, sure. You went to Dalhousie University out in the east. I did. I'm from Nova Scotia. Yeah. So, so are you, yeah, I went, uh, is that where you grew up? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was born in Ontario, but I moved out there when I was really little. So okay. I say I'm from Nova Scotia, but okay. not born and bred Nova a blue noser. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I went to went to Dalhousie, did a history degree um, in, for my undergrad, and then um, started working in uh, the public archives of Nova Scotia and was basically doing genealogy for people. What does that um, which mean? Was a, which is, well, I was researching people's family history. Okay. So um, Halifax was the entry point for a lot of Im- immigrants coming mm. into the country uh, before people flew into the country. When, when they took uh, ships across the ocean, um, Halifax, everyone coming from Europe and, and that side of the world um, came through Halifax. So okay. it, the province holds a lot of vital statistics records, so yeah. births, deaths, marriages, um, that sort of thing. Um so people would come from all over North America looking for their ancestors. A lot of ships records as well, manifest, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. So um, basically, yeah, I spent uh, my days digging through uh, microfilm rolls and, and, you know, old newspapers and, and boxes of files and stuff um, looking for, for people's ancestors. And it was really cool, some of the stories that we were able to um, help people piece together. Uh Interesting. Because I, I, you know, I, I love history and I love the stories that come out of, out of, you know, the artifacts and the objects. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to work in a museum. So digging through the boxes and helping to people piece together their personal story was, was really amazing to do that on a, on a daily basis. Was there, um, was there something, I, I don't know whether it was something in your childhood or maybe something that your, your parents were doing that, that drove you in that direction? Um, you know, I mean, I, I played pretty competitive hockey my whole life okay. <laughs> until I was about 20. I, I played in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. For really? Wow. And, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I sat on the bench mostly, but okay. you know, I, did, I did get off the ice every now and again. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I just, I, I, that was kind of my path. I was, I was doing the hockey thing and, and I got to the point where, you know, I, I realized I wasn't going to go pro and, and had to make some decisions on what the next step was. Uh-huh. And uh, I was lucky enough to, to keep up with my schooling and, and uh, you know, I continued to go to school while I was playing, not a lot of guys do. 
Um, and history was just kind of one of those subjects that came easy. Um, you know, I didn't, uh, it really interests me, so it wasn't hard. I didn't have to study and, and really enjoy learning and, and uh, you know, writing the essays and doing the tests and things. So when it came time to go to university, I said, you know what, let's just, let's just pile on the history courses. Nice. And I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but, um, you know, I, it, it just, it, it was an interest of mine. So, hmm. so um, yeah, I took a little bit of everything and, uh, and then just kind of, you know, talk to some of my professors and, and had them open my eyes to where you, what you could do with a history degree. Um, and, uh, and yeah, started, started working at the public archives. And correct me if I'm wrong, um, I, I saw very recently, I don't know if I was watching something or reading something that, and I don't know whether it's Halifax, you might know better than I, um, was it the first free, the first slaves who became free? in North America or Canada are from Nova Scotia or Halifax or, or is that somewhere different I'm thinking? Well, um, I don't, I don't know the, the exact details, but, um, this was a, was a long, long time ago. Yeah. Um, I believe it was a Caribbean Island. Yeah. Um, some slaves, uh, fought for their freedom, won their freedom and then were, uh, were sent to Nova Scotia. Okay. Uh, we're, we're given land in Nova Scotia and then, but of course, you know the land was horrible. They couldn't farm on it, that sort of thing. So they, some of them stayed, some of them left. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember which island it was from. It might have been the Barbados or something. But um, yeah, that was uh, that was in the early 1800s, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't don't quote me on that. It's been sure. a long time since I've done Nova Scotia history. Um, do, do you remember any? Uh, really interesting, whether it was somebody local or somebody national or international that you were looking up there, you know, just some person's, uh, you know, family history, and it ended up they came from a really, um, you know, whether it's, you know, someone who was famous or somebody that was very, very important in history? Yeah, no, there wasn't anyone that that had any notable uh, lineage. It was, it was, but it was really interesting. You know, we had a lot of people that came from, you know, all over the U.S. And okay. it was really interesting to me that, you know, people from, you know, we get people from the East Coast of the U.S., but we'd also get people from the Midwest and, and the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And and to me, I'm I'm really interested in in those personal stories. You know, it's great to, everyone knows about, you know, the generals and the presidents and yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. But, you know, um, family history is, is so interesting in how people find their way. Um and uh, and so that was really interesting, having people coming all the way from California to research their family history, and then they know that they you know they have a record of them uh, in say Michigan somewhere mm-hmm. at a certain time, and then they have a record of them in Chicago, and then they have a record of them in you know Iowa or something, but you know they don't have any record of them in Canada or where they came in. So piecing that together for them so they can uh, find their family's path to where they. Um, ended up is was was a lot of fun, um, but yeah, there were no like princes or <laughs> kings or kings or queens or anything. Like All that. right, it was, um, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun and and uh, you know I was there for about a year and then I moved to Toronto and in 2006 and started working at the ROM and um, you know I, I ended up doing my masters in museum studies um, 
a few years after I still, well, I was working in the library and archives and kind of done a little bit of everything at the museum. Yeah. Um, but I've been, uh, it's actually, I've been doing uh, social media for five years now, if you can believe it. Um, and then that's the longest job that I've held, <laughs> the longest <laughs> post that I've held at the wrong for that. I, I bounce around every couple of years. But. You're doing well. Well, let me ask you, you know, coming from um, Halifax to Toronto, um, did you come with the, the ROM job that you, you know, did you apply for the job and then move or did you move here hoping that you'd work at one of the, you know, large institutions here? Well, I didn't, um, I didn't actually know what the ROM was, um, okay. to be honest. Yeah. Um, uh, I knew that there were a lot of museums in Toronto, but my, uh, my wife now, my, my girlfriend at the time, we, um, we treat, we chose Toronto as a sort of neutral ground, um, I have uh, an uncle that lives in Burlington, so um, we thought it would be easier to get started here. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, we just, uh, Labor Day uh, 2006, we, we met in Burlington, and we spent about a month uh, looking for jobs and apartments and things, and by October I was working at Brom, and we had an apartment at Lawrence Spadina, and the rest is history. Wow. Say. Yeah. And, and how, yeah. Was, how was it going from a small quote-unquote small town you know Halifax is large but you know relatively yep. speaking yep. how was it coming from Halifax to Toronto well, it was definitely an adjustment but mm-hmm. um you know uh, I, I lived in Europe for a few years before we moved to Toronto uh-huh. um you know I was used to like you know working and, and living in London and, and and I was in Scotland for a little while so you know being in Europe it, it I was getting I was getting used to the big city life but there's definitely an adjustment when you come to Toronto. The first thing I noticed is um, people don't look at each other when they pass no. <laughs> each other on the street. We don't always um, see hi, do know, we? Yeah, in, in Halifax, it's it's almost rude not to nod or say hi or at least acknowledge someone when you pass on the street. So that was a big that was a big adjustment for me. I think people thought I was a little bit crazy when I, <laughs> you know, was, was nodding at everyone that I passed on the street, and I quickly realized that it just you know it's something you don't do in in the big city. But you know, we. Um, like I said, we lived at Blur and Spadina, so we were right by the subway, and, and you know, my wife worked downtown, and, and we really had a great time, uh, you know, exploring all the neighborhoods in the city and, and going to all the different restaurants and, and really taking in the, you know, the diverse culture that they have here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the things that, that is so great about, about the GTA is, is just all of the different cultures and, and, and the food and the music, and, and, and we can you can be exposed to in the, in the city. Yeah. Now you started at the ROM as one of those guys that, you know, when, when I enter the, the, the museum, you're probably one of the first people that I would, would have met mm-hmm. back in 2006, 2007. Um, yeah. You know, how was, how, did you have your sets, uh, your, your sights set on, you know, you're going to come here and you're going to start working your way up to, to do some really, really important and cool work. Or, you know, how was, what was going through your mind as, as you, you know, got your job and started working? Yeah, I mean, um, like, I, like I said earlier, I always knew that I, uh, that I wanted to do something with history. And, that, and I was always drawn to museums because of that tangible link of the, of the objects um, to history and the stories that you can tell from, mm-hmm. from those objects. But I wasn't sure how I was going to make that happen. So yeah. my first job at the ROM, I actually sold audio guides yeah. for about three four months and then I um, 
they merged that role with a membership role. So I was, I was, uh, if you, if you remember at that time, uh, all the entrances except for the school group entrance, which is on the south end of the building. So we only had three cash registers at that time. Wow. Um, three people working the desk when we were bringing people in. Um, it was just, it was just wild because we were in a big transition there. A lot of people forget when the crystal was built, not only did they build the crystal, they also renovated most of the museum. So a lot of the museum was shut down between about 2003 and 2007. They would shut down different sections and redo all the galleries. Um, so there was, you know, it was, it was quite, um, it was quite chaotic for a little bit there. Yeah. I'm going to say, um, and then, uh, and then, yeah, um, Right before we opened the Crystal in, in May, uh, I took over as uh, we call them lead concierges, but they basically manage all of the people that work on the front desk. So I took over that role uh, about three weeks before we opened the Crystal. And mm-hmm. uh, again, just chaos. We're trying to get everything ready, everything set, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, we, <laughs> we, we managed to get, it, get everything done when we opened the doors on the uh, in, in the first of June there in, in 2007, um, and I did I managed the the front desk for until about 2000 until 2009. So uh, I was my first shift actually was um, one of my first shifts was the night shift the night we opened the crystal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked uh, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. because we were open for 24 hours that first day. Really? Did, were there a lot of people that came through? Yeah, I think we had about three or four thousand people um, wow. through uh, over the nighttime. Yeah. Um, but there was no, we weren't. It was free, so it was just handing out maps and giving people directions. And yeah. Things like that. And I don't know if you remember, but when we opened, we opened the building empty so that people could take in the architecture. Um, oh. So wow. that that was that was an interesting way to open a building. And in, in hindsight, I don't know if if uh, <laughs> if anyone will do that again, but. Um, you know, the thought was that people wanted to see the building first before. Where's we, all the stuff? You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was the main question people had was, you know, I, I want to see the exhibits. Where's the exhibits? And, yeah. You know, it was a it was a full year and a bit before the dinosaurs came back on the second floor. Um, so there, it was it was quite a, uh, a you know it was a, a difficult year there for for a while. Um, I was the person everyone complained to. Um, so thanks, Toronto. Um, I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, we we probably uh, probably should have had some more exhibits in there when we opened the building, but uh, that's the way we did it. And, you know, it's been it's crazy to think it's been ten years since since the building's been open. Now, what's that? What's that big, massive dinosaur? As soon as you come in, that's in the main atrium. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, what's the, what's that dinosaur? That is Foodalongosaurus. Now, where was? We, I don't know. Is it a boy or a girl? Do we know? We don't know. We don't know. Um, yeah, it's very. It's it's almost impossible to tell the sex of dinosaurs. Now, I'm not a paleontologist, so if you have any paleontologists listening, they they will probably text me. But um, yeah, it's it's very difficult to tell um, the sex of dinosaurs because all we have is their bones, so they can infer a little bit by the size of their hips and things like that, but ah. they're not actually sure. Um, they can't definitively say if, if it's female or male. Um, we like to say she's a female because she was uh, discovered by by a lady um, in Argentina who was okay. actually on her first dig as a student. It's a really wow. cool story, actually. Um, she's now obviously the ex in that species of dinosaur, but she was on her very first dig as a student, and she was out with her advisor and you know a group of people and. 
her advisor was really interested in working in this one little area and he was like, yeah, yeah, don't bother me. I'm, you know, go over there and look over there. And so she went over there and looked over there and she uncovered one of the vertebrae, just like, you know, tip of the iceberg. Right. Yeah. And, um, so she's brushing away and, and she's like, you know, she was still a student, but she recognized that maybe this, this was something that no one had ever seen before and she better go tell her supervisor. Yeah. And again, her supervisor blew her off. So mm-hmm. she started digging away, digging away. And once she got most of the vertebrae uncovered, she went back and she said, look, come over here and see this. <laughs> and so she brought him over and he was like, wow, you found something brand new. So That's amazing. Um, so yeah, it's a really cool story. I like to tell that to people. Um, but uh, And what um, was her name? Uh, her last name. Uh, We're putting you on the spot now. Yeah, I forget her. We'll last come name. back to That's it. That's horrible. That's horrible of me. But, <laughs> um, like I said, if there's any paleontologist, um, they'll know her. They'll know her. Well, um, what what she, I was she's Argentinian. So what I was curious about is, as you guys were closed and and renovating, where do you store that dinosaur and like everything else? Hmm. Well. That dinosaur didn't come into the collection until 2012. Okay, all right. So we didn't we didn't actually have it until um, uh, uh, till well after we opened. But um, we have um, we have storage within the building actually. Okay. Um, so a lot of people don't see it, but there's you can kind of tell um, if you ever bring your kids for a school group or something. Um, there's sort of um, the 1930s wing, and then just beside that is a very 1970s, 1980s looking building. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, that's the curatorial center. So we have nine floors, three basements, and um, there's a lot of collections and, and offices and things in there. And then we have an offsite, offsite storage facility wow. um, in, in the burbs. So yeah, there's, um, we only, uh, museums generally can only display about one to 2% of their collection. Really? And yeah, so there's lots of stuff that goes unseen. And why um, is that? Uh, a number of reasons. Like, um, I would guess that the most interesting stuff people don't see. But, yeah, but probably. That, that'd be um, fair. So, yeah. so, yeah, go ahead. You're in it. You were going to explain why not. Uh, some things um, uh, are, uh, are really, really fragile. A lot of textiles. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of um, a lot of things like that. Um, they just don't do well in the light. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's why we only um, on the fourth floor we have a textiles exhibition uh, space that rotates about every six months mm-hmm. because because the the fabric just deteriorates really quickly. So um, the the textiles people like to like to keep changing things up. Yeah. Um, so so condition is one. Um, uh, you know, uh, sometimes people donate things and it's purely for preservation. It's not for display. So. Okay. Um, it depends on yeah. It depends on who donates and 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 the stipulations around that donation. Um, and then uh, you know if if there's no if, if if there's no story to tell. So a lot of things. Huh. Um, a lot of things are are not a notable object. Mm-hmm. Um, so like we have a big canoe collection, but they're just canoes. There's no like um, you know overall story like this canoe travel down this river during this battle or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so it's just, it's just an example of, of that kind of craftsmanship at that time. Mm-hmm. So if we're not doing an exhibit on, on that, or it doesn't fit into an exhibition in some way, then it's not on display. Interesting. What's, yeah. um, 
is there stuff there that that the museum is not allowed to disclose? Hmm. Hmm. I guess so. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll probably leave it at that. I mean, um, fair enough. Uh, yeah, one of. I mean, I guess the big thing is um, human remains. Okay. Uh, so, so mummies. Um, hmm. Is a is a touchy subject. I mean, obviously, these people were laid to rest. Okay, uh, sure. You know, many many years ago. So, um, it's you know, it's a it was a questionable practice when people were digging in Egypt and digging up you know people. Huh. So, you, you, yeah, yeah, that's, that's there are uh, there are museums that have a pretty substantial collection of, of human remains, and, and wow. a lot of them have um, not gotten rid, but um, made arrangements um, for for the, those collections. So um, you you cannot confirm nor deny that you guys might have the remains of Elvis. <laughs> Definitely cannot confirm. You or cannot deny. confirm nor deny that. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and and can you confirm or deny whether there's aliens? I cannot. You cannot go. Okay. But I think, I think NASA <laughs> has, NASA's going to have some news about that. I think uh, I read a story about something. Really? Yeah. Okay. Not recently. So All right. Anonymous was involved and, you know, they were going to leak, uh, you know, that NASA has something. Uh, some information on uh, extraterrestrial life, so we'll we'll see. Stay tuned. Stay for tuned more. for that. <laughs> Coming to a museum near you. You did a. So you did, of, sorry, sorry, go I was going to say one of the things that we, we do have that's a, another really cool story that not a lot of people know about is our Martian meteorite collection. So okay, we have, interesting. Yeah, so we have the largest Martian meteorite collection in the world. At the wrong. At the wrong, and, and it's really, it's really cool. There's this guy, yeah, who's a who's a donor, and he'll re- remain nameless. Okay, and he came to a Saturday morning club. Uh, you know, he was a regular Saturday Saturday morning clubber when he was a kid. And I don't know if, if your son's been to you know any of our programs on on Saturday mornings or summer club, but you know we we get kids, uh, we get them in the museum, we get them dirty, we get them holding objects, we teach them about uh, you know it's a lot of hands on learning. And, and this guy got to hold a meteorite when he was a kid, mm-hmm. and it just blew his mind. So he went on and became fairly wealthy, and and he made it his hobby to buy up meteorites and to donate them to the ROM. Wow! With the one stipulation that we allow researchers to study them. Wow! So so basically, this guy has been buying up all the Martian meteorites that come on the market. Yeah. And just donated them to us over the last several years. Wow! And so we, up until a few years ago, we I think we were two behind the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian had twenty-one of them. We had nineteen, and then he bought three of them and, and donated them to us. So we overtook the Smithsonian. And there's only about a hundred and ten, hundred and fifteen of, of Martian meteorites known in the world. Um, so we have we have a good majority of them there. That's amazing. And these are not on display. They are. All of them yeah, are. People, not all of them. Some okay. Of them. Yeah. People walk right by them, but if you go up on the second floor in the Gems and Minerals Gallery, they're on your right when you go um, uh, when you go in the gallery, and there's a big case of meteorites, and uh, a little little section of them are from Mars. And and how how do we know they're from Mars? What's what's the science behind that? Uh, when they so when when a meteorite comes in, uh, we have a diamond saw in the in the basement, um, uh-huh. and and it's kind of 
like a bandsaw, but the core, the, the band is made out of diamonds, so it can cut through anything. Wow. And they slice, they slice off little sections of the meteorite, and then the dust, they use the dust to run tests on it. Yeah. And they find the makeup of, of, of the rock, and, and they compare it to other known samples, and, and, um, and, and they determine that it's the same rock that is on Mars. That is wild stuff. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. wild stuff. So we have we have meteorites that are lunar meteorites. We have okay. uh, meteorites that are Martian meteorites, and then we have meteorites that are from n- not a known body <laughs> in the solar system, um, which is which is pretty awesome. We don't know where it's from. We just know it's no. here. It's it's it was in space somewhere. We don't know where it came from, but it's it's got uh, a lot of it. There's a lot of iron, but uh-huh. uh, they don't know where. Um, Know, what what body it came from wow that's pretty cool that is really interesting what so so meteorites you know you've got some on display what is not on display um that you can talk about that that is most interesting to you hmm that's a really tough question yeah um because just the nature of our collection so sure, sure. A, lo- a lot of museums have have a you know a single focus they're focused on natural history mm-hmm. or they're focused on contemporary art or you know fine art that sort of thing we kind of do it all yeah um so there's not a day that goes by that my mind isn't blown um sitting, mm. <laughs> sitting at my desk you know i'm i'm very fortunate to sit in an area where um we're right next to the photography studio so part of uh Part of uh, what we do around objects is we take photos of them sure. because we need to have a record of them, and that's connected to you know the provenance and and uh, the donor information and all that kind of stuff in the record. So every day there's a card of something going by my desk, yeah. and it's really great to just you know I, I know all the people that work at the collection, so they say, hey Ryan, check this out. Um, so I, I get to see it all. So um, you know my my. Undergrad is in European history, um, so anything from the European collection uh, is, I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Jennifer Canard, who's the collection technician, uh, I went up to visit her um, last week, and she was working on some musical instruments, some some guitars from uh, the Baroque period, which were really interesting. Mm. She's also has this really cool collection of um, a doctor's kits from ships. From like the 16th, 17th century, which okay. is really cool, and um, you know because they use questionable medicines, <laughs> wow. you know arsenic and things like that. Yeah, you know, there's little vials and these little these wooden kits, these wooden briefcases with you know all these little, little wooden vials, which is essentially poison. Um, so so that's really interesting. Um, uh, the dinosaurs. It's always cool to go up and see the paleo section. Um, and then you know the meteorites. Um, there's there's a there's one uh, that's as old as um, that's older than the Earth, which is which is pretty cool. Hmm. Um, it's, it's about four point six billion years old. Massive massive piece of rock. Um, so that, that's really cool. Um, you know the textiles is, is really amazing. Um, we have uh, you know high fashion. We have a really um, great Dior collection. Um, but we also have, uh, you know, hand-woven textiles. Um, uh, we have a couple of uh, pieces of clothing that have survived from uh, the Roman period. Um, and then one of the really cool spots that no one ever talks about behind the scenes of the museum is the conservation um, area. So these 
these are the people that it's their job to preserve the artifacts. Okay. Um, they're they're a bit like a detective and a scientist, and uh, you know, kind of all rolled into one. And so there's one lady who does uh, Laura Lipsy. She does uh, stone, ceramic, and glass, and she always has the coolest stuff in her lab. Um, you know, uh, little Roman uh, pieces of glass, uh, bowls, vials, things like that that have deteriorated over time and shattered. So she's basically putting together, gluing them back together. Um, and then, you know, the same with stone, cleaning stone. She's the one that takes care of the guardian mines out on Queen's Park and makes sure that, you know, they're covered up and they're, they're well taken care of. Okay. Um, you know, and, and there's a whole, there's a whole, there's a papers conservator, um, there's a paintings conservator, um, you know, uh, and, and a really cool group of people. Susan Stock is the, is the metals conservator. So she's the one that cleans all the armor and all the swords and everything. So, um, you know, they're really cool ladies, and they have a really, really important job. And I try to, I, I try to highlight them on, on on our social media accounts whenever I can, because they, you know, it's it's one of those jobs that is it could be a little thankless, but sure, um, it, it's really, really important for the the health of the collection. Because really, that is our mandate as a museum is to preserve preserve these objects long term hmm. in perpetuity. So, um, you know, having them on on staff is is really valuable. What's the? Well, I mean, I don't know if I answered that question because there's just so many cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, de- most definitely. What's um, you know, you, you talked about you know preserving artifacts uh, and the importance of that. Why you know why is it important? Well, um, depends on how philosophical you want to get, but it's it's uh, it's our shared human human history. Um, you know, so, um, it's, it's, it's the record of, of our culture through time. Um, and, and it's important to know where we've been, to know where we can go. Um, so having, you know, having examples of the way people did things or, or, um, gives you real insight into their thought processes, their, you know, their desires, their, their needs, their, you know, um, their challenges. Um, so, you know, having having that, displaying that, telling those stories is, is really important for for educational purposes and, and just for for the human race in general, in my opinion. Sure, sure. Um, we're at the tenth anniversary mm-hmm. of uh, of the crystal. Yes. Um, at the time, let let's go back. You know, ten years ago. Um, you know, what was, you know, if you can recall, you know, what was the reasoning, uh, behind that? Was it to, you know, make the buildings sort of a destination location, uh, that people would flock to, that people would remember, um, you know, what was the reason for building that? That is a good question. Um, (laughs) so I guess, so I, uh, I wasn't in Toronto at the time, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the decision to expand really started when uh, William Torsell came to be the director of the museum, and I believe he started, it was either uh, 1999 or 2000, 2001, around that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, there was also, uh, the AGO was also doing their renovations at the same time, and there was this real sort of archi- cultural architecture boom at that time okay um, and so 
you know, I think, um, correct, you know, someone will correct me if I'm wrong, I think Roy Thompson Holland, they're under, underwent some renovations in the theater district and things like that. So there was real sort of renaissance with the, the cultural institutions in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, putting on my museum studies hat for a second, um, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, what's it called? The Guggenheim in, uh, Balboa, Spain. Yep. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. So the Balboa effect, um, you know, um, that that city wasn't doing that well economically. Um, there's a lot of crime, et cetera, in that town. So they built this museum, and then all these visitors, these tourists came, and it really turned that turned that city around. So from that example, uh, a lot of museums entered into these large expansion projects, and historically, museums expand every generation or two so it's not a new thing you know the, the ROM started out as one building and then the 30s expanded and then there was another expansion done in the 60s 70s um, and then finally the crystal replaced that building that was that was there so mm-hmm. you know it's not like the museum was just one building for you know 80 years and then we put the crystal on it so sure um, but I believe uh, William Thorsell thinking at the time was part you know yes part attraction um, part, uh, you know, statement that we were uh, bringing ourselves into into the 21st century, that we were, uh, you know, a, an institution that looked at the history of, of mankind and their natural history, but also was in touch with, with the world around us and, and wanted to be involved in contemporary histories and, and stories. Um, it A lot of people don't know it actually doubled our gallery space. So we're really? Able to, to bring out a lot more collections than we could have in the past. Um, and at the time when it was open, the, the special exhibition space in the basement was the largest temporary exhibition space in Canada. Um, so it, it, it just allows us to bring in uh, traveling shows that we couldn't before, that we just couldn't, couldn't house. So, um, you know, yes, it's a little bit, you know, in your face, jarring, if you will. I've heard, I've heard all the mean tweets. I've seen all the comments on Yelp, you know, um, but it, it's, it's. I think it's really great for the city um, because it's one of the most re- recognizable buildings in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, we see it um, when we're, we're doing our social listening. We see it on commercials. We see it in music videos. We see it, yeah. you know, all over the place. It's, you know, it's on. Uh, the sides of the city tour buses. It's, you know, it's used all over the place. It's a recognizable landmark for the city and, and love it or hate it, um, people talk about it. So, you know, if, if we can be top of mind, um, hopefully some of those people will be interested enough to come inside the building and see what we have to say on the inside. Yeah, and recently I've been seeing some chatter online mm-hmm. um, about it and and you know, I, I don't go in depth too much on on, on things like that. Uh, but it, are there, is there talk of closing it? Is it talk because there's a new entrance opening up or an old entrance becoming new again? What's yeah. what's what's yeah, what's going on? Um, uh, you know, um, the Queens Park entrance, um, yes. which is sort of the historical just the historical entrance to the building, um, was closed. Uh, probably in the late 90s, early 2000s. 
And, you know, a lot of people really love, they remember, it's nostalgic. They used to come through that entrance as, as children, and, and, you know, we hear that quite a bit. And um, it's also really confusing. If you get off at Museum Station, you walk right by that entrance. Yeah. And you have to go up to Blue, Blue Street, and we notice a lot of people are just, you know, they don't know where to go. So um, it's been a few years that we've done studies on other museums that have multiple entrances, and and we're you know just putting a plan together. But yeah, we're going to open the Queens Park entrance um, back up again in the fall, in September, I believe. Um, so we'll have two ways to enter the building. You can pick or choose, and um, I think it'll I think it'll make people um, you know who who remember that old entrance. Um, you know, it'll, it'll bring them back to the time when they used to visit the museum. And, and you know, the, the main entrance, as we have it now, it's not the nicest, I'll be honest, but it's functional, and it allows us to bring in a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not a grand museum entrance, per se, but, um, you know, last year we, we welcomed 1.35 million visitors. Mm. Um, that's the most ever in our history. Wow. And, we've, and our attendance has been increasing at about you know 20 percent per year year over year since we opened the crystal so part of that is you know uh the exhibitions we put on and and the, you know the research that we're doing in the field and with our visual presence um but um you know it, it's it is a functional entrance um so uh you know not a lot of people don't like it um but it you know it allows us to to admit a lot more people than we could with with the old queen's park entrance yeah um is it staying is it going the crystal yeah no no yeah we're gonna yeah, it, it it'll be there for a long time yeah yeah a lot of people don't know it's actually five different sections okay pieced, pieced together so the steel that is the backbone of the crystal is quite substantial um and so yeah it's not it's not going any, anywhere anytime soon um, at least not that I've heard. Yeah. What's it, you know, but people do you know? It, it, like I said, it is polarizing. Um, people either love it or hate it, and it's interesting to hear people's comments. And um, you know, and I'm surprised after ten years that you know, um, you know, people haven't warmed up to it a little bit. I mean, you know, the Eiffel Tower was nice, or when it first went up, and and now you know it's a beloved. Uh, landmark in Paris. Obviously, it's been around for a couple of hundred years now, but um, you know, it, it still it still blows my mind when people complain about the building because um, I'm always like, well, yeah, that's fine. You can have your opinion, but isn't it the stuff on the inside that counts? Hmm. You know, isn't isn't that what you Curious. come to a museum for? Um, you know, and I get I see lots of tweets and comments about people that say it'll never come back because of the crystal, and I say, well, it's, it's a little bit short sighted, don't you think? Yeah. Um, you know, if if the whole point of the institution is is education and, and learning and, and and that sort of thing, you can't really do that much on the outside. You need to come in and, and engage with the exhibits and our wonderful educators and things like that to to really get the full um, experience of the museum. Yeah. So it's unfortunate, but is there a reason I, I, why why the shape of a crystal or the concept of a crystal was chosen? Do you know? Uh, I think the story goes that um, Daniel Leafskin, who's the architect, was was sort of um, uh, inspired by the Gems and Mineral Collection. Mm. Um, but if you look at his buildings around the world, they're all kind of the same shape. 
Um, okay. The, Den- the Denver Art Museum is one. Uh, there's a military museum in, in Dresden, uh, Germany, that looks somewhat similar. Um, I believe he did uh, the Imperial War Museum North in Manchester as well. Um, so they all kind of have the same sort of look. Um, yeah. And ours, our edition opened a few years after Denver. Um, and if you Google Denver Art Museum, you'll see the pictures and, and you'll, you'll see the similarities for sure. Wow. Um, I'm curious, you know, we've been talking a lot about the ROM, but, um, do you, let's, let's talk about Toronto first, cause there's many of these, mm-hmm. um, do you have a favorite, uh, museum in Toronto, not including the ROM? Oh, um, I think some of the city museums are pretty awesome. Um, you know, my wife and I got married at, uh, Spadina House, so that's a, that's a real favorite of ours. Okay. Um, uh, Fort York is always great. They're doing really great stuff. Um, they had a really cool uh, uh, augmented reality experience uh, for the War of 1812 a few years ago. Um, and, and yeah, like shout out to the City of Toronto uh, Museum staff. They're doing some really great work around the city. Um, if you get a chance to go to um, the post office, the first post office down on Richmond, um, that's a really cool spot. Um, and Rich, also, Richmond and where? Uh, Jarvis, I think. Okay. On the east side, hmm. and it's just a it's a little old uh, house, kind of down where George Brown is. Okay. Just west of George Brown down there. All right. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's it's Charles Fritz first post office, and you can do like you can get some old stamps, and you can mail things to a working wow. post office. Um, but it's that's kind of like old city of Toronto so there's a lot of history down there um but that's worth taking in um uh I, I mean you know there's like the big ones like the Batashu and, and the AGO and, and the Gardner and, and the Aga Khan if you haven't been to the Aga Khan Museum you should really get up there and, and take in that space it's just breathtaking um and and they put on some really great shows on some really great, great exhibits mm-hmm. um, um so yeah definitely take the time to get up there but I yeah I really like the um you know, the, the local history um, that you can find in the city. What about elsewhere in Canada? Do you have a favorite museum? Um, well, I've been doing some work with, uh, with the Vancouver Art Gallery, so it's been really okay. great to get out, get out west um, on the west coast and, and, and see that end of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the, the Vancouver Art Gallery has a really the best collection of Emily Carr uh, work. Ah. in the country in the world so um you know it's really great to get up and close um with her stuff um i was recently in winnipeg uh and and took in the canadian museum of human rights which if you ever get a chance here find yourself in winnipeg it's definitely a must-see um you know it tells the story of human rights uh not just in canada but across the across the world it's a really really powerful um place um really need to prepare yourself for the stories that you're gonna hear and interact with when you go in there but it's probably one of the most important museums um uh, that that there is um and then i think uh quebec city is one of my favorites um just the old town it's got that real um you know uh european feel to it Um, so so we're looking to go there this summer to quebec city yeah. Where, where where would you recommend we go there? Like we love history, 
like I said, yeah. you know, I'm not I'm not a buff, you know, a history buff like yourself, mm-hmm. but I like to, you know, consume that stuff. It's 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 more fascinating to me than, you know, a lot of the new things that that are happening. But you know, what what should we take uh, take our, our our sights in? Well, you definitely want to check out, um, you know, the old town. So that's um, sort of Quebec City is built on on uh, on like a plateau. Yes. Um, and then down next to the river is where the old town used to be and still is. And that's where, the, you know, the small streets, cobblestone, that sort of thing. So you want to check out uh, that. But also up on the, on the hill is the Plains of Abraham where, where um, oh, yes. you know, the famous battle took place in 1759 between the English and the French, um, which really decided... Uh, you know, which really made North America English. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's that's a you know it's an important part in, in Canadian history. Um, so you can probably check that out. And then um, Chateau Frontenac, which is the big old hotel there. Um, there was actually during World War II there was a conference between uh, Roosevelt and Churchill and Mackenzie King in in that hotel. It's kind of cool to go in there and. It's got you know it's an old one of those old uh canadian pacific hotels so it's you know really big and grand but kind of old and you know you can imagine it being haunted that sort of thing <laughs> um so you, you definitely want to go in there and check that out and, and they've got a little bit in there but it's it's been years um, like i said i used to play hockey in in quebec so it's been years since i've been uh downtown quebec city um they also have uh uh musée de la civilization in in quebec city um, which is a, is a really great museum um, about uh, not only Quebec, um, their culture, but also uh, they bring in shows that deal with, with different cultures around the world. Huh. Um, so it's, it's neat to see it from, uh, from the Quebecois uh, perspective. Um, but yeah, they've, they've a great space down there. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, uh, take your time, you know. Uh, there's lots to see in, that area and then I'm, I'm not even going to get into Nova Scotia because there's just a, there's a ton of history in, in Halifax um, uh, you know just just walking around uh, downtown and, and the Citadel and, and all that kind of stuff but, yeah um, you know uh, for you know I, I think museums the museum community in, in Canada is relatively small compared to other countries around the world but I think the stories that we have to tell are, are unique and they're just as important as any of the other big museums and, and around the world. You're doing some some work with Juno Beach Center. Yeah. Tell me about that. Where so first of all, where is where is this place? You know, what is it about? And and, and let's mm-hmm. talk about some of the stuff you're doing. Yeah, so um, Juno Beach Center is uh, it's it's the headquarters are in Burlington, um, okay. but there's an actual museum in France in Crucial-sur-Mer, which is a little town where uh, Juneau Beach, which was Canada's D-Day beach yeah. in World War II. So it's where the Canadians attacked on D-Day um, and actually got farther than any, any of our allies and had to come back, which is a little known fact, but we'll just leave, it, leave that there. Um, Wait, they had to and, come back? Yeah, so we... Um, our airborne units were the only units to take and hold all of their objectives during during D-Day. Yeah. Um, and our forces that landed on the beach, they got um, far enough to link up with them, but they got too far because uh, Utah and Omaha Beach was such such a 
there was there, it was it was a difficult time for the Americans over there, so um, they had to kind of they didn't want to get too far um, ahead of everyone else, so they they came back a little bit and, and shored mm-hmm. up their position. But um, but yeah, we uh, we did really well on V-Day, um, comparatively speaking. So um, and and surprisingly enough, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, talk about Vimy, um, but. You know, and Vimy's a you know it's a national historic site. It's, That's right. You know, it's it's actually a piece of Canada in France, um, but Juno Beach is not. Um, you know, and, and it was actually a group of veterans that fundraised and put together um, the plans to actually build a museum uh, on on Juno Beach. It's right on the shores, and it's a privately owned uh, nonprofit um, run by the association here in Canada. And uh, I actually had the, um, the fortune, I was fortunate enough to visit it um, just after it opened in 2003 while I was living in Europe. And, and it's, it's interesting because it doesn't just tell about the battle and what Canadians did in that battle, it tells the story of Canada as well. Uh-huh. So it's, it's kind of part, you know, um, uh, you know giving, giving tourists and, and people that come because lots of people come to the new day beaches it's a big tourism draw for for normandy uh-huh. um so so there's there's visitors from all over that are that are checking out that area so it's, it's our chance to say hey this is what canada's about this is what we were like you know in that time and and this is where we are now and here's here's what uh what we accomplished in in that difficult conflict so um so yeah it's a, it's a really neat spot um and uh, and I was brought on uh, to to a year and a half ago to um, look at what they were doing online, look at their digital strategy. Well, they didn't have a digital strategy, but look at what they were doing and, and sort of um, kind of give them some some direction and, and some tactics and some strategy on on how to you know better engage with Canadians and people in France about the story about Juno Beach. Mm-hmm. That 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 is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when... yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun because it's um, you know my main passion is First World War history, so yeah. um, you know it's it's really great to be able to give back a little bit to um, you know to to people that are willing to 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 give the ultimate sacrifice for our country. So um, you know, doing a little bit to to help uh, help tell that story is is incredibly honor. It's such an honor for me. So, um, you know, when they they came and asked, I was happy to do it. And, and oh, for uh, sure. Yeah, it's um, it's a really great spot. If you ever find yourself over in Normandy, you definitely need to check it out. There's a lot of great um, institutions over there, um, in in that area. But it's it's, it's definitely a you know a place to feel a sense of pride in being Canadian for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially at this time of year. Mm-hmm. Um. What is, you're also doing some stuff with the museum computer network. Mm-hmm. What what is is it what it sounds like? Is this just a museum or, or what what really is that? Yeah, um, uh, museum computer network. It's a nonprofit. It's actually, this is crazy. We're actually celebrating our fiftieth anniversary. Fifty. Uh, Fifty years of the museum computer network. So uh, it started in 1967. Um, which is wild. Like if you think about the computers that were around in 1967, they're like the big mainframe computers that took up a whole warehouse, you know, space and IBM computers. But huh. um, 
but yeah, so I'm I'm their um, digital content manager. So I uh, help them with the website. I help them. I run their social media. And really, what we what we've evolved into is is um, we're a resource for uh, people that work with technology and museums, and we run an annual conference. So we're a membership organization and, and a conference, uh, mm. and we, we put on a conference. And so we have a you know we have a conference every November, and uh, there's people presenting on social media, on uh, online presence, uh, collections management systems, uh, copyright, uh, open data initiatives. Uh, linked open data initiatives, uh, you know, you name it. Anything that has to do with technology and museums, we talk about. Um, and so it's a really great group of people. Um, and, and through working with them, I've gotten to know a lot of people around the world that work with technology. And, and, and they're a great bunch of people. And, and a lot of, oh, there's a lot of interesting projects going on. And, and a lot of really, really smart people that, you know, they're not curators, but they're, you know, they're, they're there to, uh, to use technology as a tool to better help curatorial staff to tell the story of the collections. Okay. So, so it's not necessarily yeah. a museum about computers. No. Okay. No. There is one of those though. I sure. believe it's in San Jose. Okay. Um, <laughs> which, uh, which is awesome. And, but yeah, so, so it's not a museum. It's a nonprofit organization. We run okay. A, yeah. We run a conference and right. um, we do a bit of training, do a bit of online training and, and offer resources for the community who uh, people who are working with technology museums. There's uh, a, a lot of initiatives that, you know, as part of uh, the Royal Ontario Museum that, you know, you've either led, been a part of, you know, been, been a, a driving force behind one of the, um, I guess, funniest or funnest ones might have been yeah. uh, Tinder. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How does how does how does uh, you know, oh, Mrs. Ryan feel about this? Yeah. So it's actually, um, you know, like I, I met my wife in two thousand three. So like online dating wasn't a thing back then. So I'm completely out of my element here. But really, <laughs> um, and it's it's been interesting. It's definitely a little terrifying. Um, but uh, I think the what happened was you. I think you know that we run an event called Friday Night Live. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so we've been doing that since 2012, and um, it's it's been really fun to experiment with Friday Night Live. Um, it, it kind of started when I started in social media, and so um, back in the day, we were the first museum to aggregate and display user-generated content during that event, mm-hmm. um, which was which was a lot of fun and really terrifying for my colleagues. But I can imagine, um, you know, really, uh, you know, really getting us to step outside to think and step outside the box with that with that event and back in the day um people shared a lot of content um mm. they were really engaged um we would just to give you an idea in the four-hour period that we on friday night live between 7 and 11 we would send say uh between 50 and 70 a night and that's a lot for a museum um, you know, that may not be a lot for, you know, the Toronto Blue Jays or the Maple Leafs during a game, but for a museum, that's quite a bit. It was, you know, part uh, customer service, but it was also we were generating a lot of content and engaging with people and, um, you know, responding and encouraging people to, to share their experience. And it really sort of built up the event and, and gave 
the community ownership over the event. They knew we were listening. They knew we were there. Um, they knew that they, if they had a question, they could ask us. They could tweet at us, and we would respond. And it was great. But I don't know if you've recognized um, the way people, their sharing habits have changed in recent years. And I it think that's has, partly, yeah. Partly, you know, and, and we can probably talk at length about, you know, um, how Snapchat has affected the way people share publicly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it just completely changed in the last couple of years. Um, and and we were recognizing since probably about 20, the end of 2014, early 2015, that, that our engagement was going, was going way down. Uh, people who were sharing lots of photos, they weren't asking as many questions. And partly that's because, you know, we get a lot of regulars that come to Friday Night Live, so they just kind of know what, what to expect and where to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we I started thinking about, well, you know, if people aren't on public, you know, public social platforms anymore, broadcast social, I like to call it, yep. you know, where, yep. are, where are they? Um, you know, are they, are they sticking in Instagram stories and sharing their... You know, sharing their their night there, or they they're snapping with their friends, and we're just not seeing it. So, I you know, and, and our big objectives for social media are is dialogue. We really want to talk to people. We want to you know, we want to engage them in, in their visits, and we want to you know help them if they need help, but also uh, you know excite them about the history that they're seeing. So, if we can do that, um, then we'll then we'll do that, and. Um, I forget what brought the idea on, but I, you know, and, and I have, have a couple of colleagues that use Tinder personally, so I had seen them use it at Friday Night Live, and I know that there are a lot of people on Tinder um, while they're visiting the museum, and, and I thought, well, what a great way to actually talk to people. Hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, kind of threw the idea around, and, and I was at a Museum Computer Network conference and was asking a couple of colleagues, you know, what would, what would you think if you went to a museum during the event and a T-Rex started chatting you up on Tinder? And they just, like, they're rolling on the floor laughing. Um, and I kind of was like, okay, I ha- there's something here. Um, hmm. You know, and so let's explore this a little bit. So we actually launched the account um, in the fall of 2015. Yeah. And just kind of like, you know, we, had, we opened it uh, and we didn't really engage with people. We kind of saw who was in the building, that sort of thing. We set the discoverability rate down to, um, to two kilometers. So it was people in the building and around the building. Um, and, you know, we had a strategy and it was basically just to engage people in dialogue around our T-Rex and, and our collection and Friday Night Live. And, um, and so this year, um, we, like I said, we, we opened it about, year and a half ago and just didn't use it for the longest time and then finally this season of Friday Night Live we've actually used it every Friday throughout the um, throughout the season so I'm going to uh, this week is our last Friday so I'm going to do a full medium post with stats and things like that and reflections on, on our little experiment but so far we've connected with quite a, quite a, uh, group, a good amount of people mm-hmm. um, and it's surprisingly uh, easy to, if they're not at Friday Night Live, to bring the conversation back to Friday Night Live, um, which I wasn't sure 
would happen. Yeah. So a lot of people, because it's two kilometers, you're catching people that are, you know, at a bar or somewhere in the area. They're not actually in the museum. Yeah. And originally I thought we were, we'd be talking to people in the museum and we could say like, Hey, come and take a selfie with me. You know, I can't, can't quite get my arms to get a good angle. That sort of thing. <laughs> um, you know, just trying to try to be a little, a little quirky, a little funny. Yeah. And, um, and, and we do get that every now and again. And we'll see people share, you know, they'll tweet out that they took a picture with Teddy and we named our T-Rex Teddy. Um, and, uh, and, and so it, it does work if you, if, if you think about our objective as dialogue. We're actually, um, I think so far we've, we've, uh, we've met 60 people and we've really? had conversations with, with over half of them. Um, you know, some of them are a little vulgar than, than they should be, but you have sure. to remember the platform you're on. Um, and we just, we just don't engage. Um, some people, um, all they say is, this is hilarious. You know, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for, for, uh, you know, for being here and, and giving me a good laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people genuinely want to talk to us and, and I think they figured out that it's the museum behind the account, but some people, um, you know, they, uh, they, they want to learn more about the museum, which is, which is what we set out to do. So, um, yeah, well, I mean, like I said, I'll, I'll do a post about it next week and, and with some more in-depth, uh, analytics and, and reflections, but, um, I don't know if it'll continue. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see, uh, how it fits in with everything we do for next season. But, um, you know, so far it's been, been quite an interesting experiment. Yeah. Um, but we've definitely, um, delivered on our objectives and that was to have, have some engagement and dialogue with people. Well, that, that brings me to this question about you know, the, the objective of social for museums in general, for the ROM specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so my, my daytime gig is, you know, working with mostly CPG brands, yep. um, and, you know, doing strategy and execution, uh, around, you know, paid campaigns on social, yep. you know, and we look at, you know, two main things, you know, one is, you know, are we building and driving awareness? Uh, and the second thing is, is, you know, are we... You know, are we are we driving sales? You know, acquisition. Yep. You know, I remember maybe three, four, five years ago, um, it was all about you know engagement and likes and and you know what what yep. we call reactions today, uh, and it has moved to you know now as a you know proper. Let's call it an advertising medium. Yeah, it's a mar- it's marketing. Yeah, but for Completely. you, I mean, you, you talk to me. You're 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 talking to me about engaging with. The museum. Yeah. So, so talk to me about like what what is the the role of social? How do you measure it? How do you prove to, you know, I guess your boss that you know things are positive. This is a net net positive for the museum. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, we um, you know museums are we're we're slow moving ships. So mm-hmm. we are starting to move in the direction of you know, our, our broadcast social channels are becoming just that. They're becoming billboards. They're becoming full-on marketing channels. And, and you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of that, but I recognize that's where a lot of those platforms are headed, so that's fine. Um, but for me, the real value is in that dialogue with our community mm-hmm. and building and building lifelong advocates for the museum. So 
you know, our, our objectives, our, our two objectives are dialogue and engagement and awareness building for everything that we do. Yeah. And, you know, so there's, you know, a number of tactics, as you know, to, to deliver on those, those two objectives. But, and part of that is paid social. We're doing a lot more paid social now. Um, but, you know, we don't have hard sales targets. We don't have hard conversion targets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and maybe we should, but, um, you know, uh, right now, um, we're still focused on increasing awareness about the research that goes on behind the scenes, the exhibitions we put on, and, and the, the programming that we do on the weekends and throughout the school year. Mm-hmm. And and for us, we're, we're in it for the long haul. Yeah. Um, so if we can excite a parent about what's happening as their kid, who then has a great time at the museum and then grows up and becomes wealthy and buys meteorites and donates them to the museum, and then that's that's so that's our return on investment right there you know so it's it's mm. it's a little harder for us to translate it on a month by month or quarter by quarter basis yeah um but you know for us it's it's really that that community engagement that we're looking for um and and remaining top of mind for people who are visiting the city but also in the city and and are looking for a place to to take their family um, on the weekend. So, um, you know, I guess for us, it's really, you know, like, and, and you know, our, you know, we still report on vanity metrics, sure. unfortunately, um, you know, and, and that's not the kind of stuff that I'm really interested in, but that's what the board and, and senior management want to know. They just want to know that there's growth. Yeah. They just want to know that there's activity and that there's growth and that sort of thing. So that's fine. We send that to them, and, and you know, there's never any questions, um, unless like Facebook or Twitter dump a bunch of, <laughs> you know, um, they dump a bunch of dead accounts or something, and our numbers go down. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, but uh, but for me, I'm really interested in in looking at our our reactions and our engagements per post, and 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 looking at how we can, you know, update our strategy and, and mix our content so that it's that that's doing the best for us because um, the reality is we don't have a budget really for social. We have a very small budget for, for, for paid ads and boosting. Um, so mm-hmm. we really need to make sure that we're, we have a, a, you know, a good content strategy in place and that we're, um, that we're developing content that really resonates with our community so that they react and share it for us. Because um, we're just we we just can't play in the same league as as private uh, companies and, and brands who have have the budget to spend on social. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I've I've had you on for for over an hour. Um, yeah. But let me let let me you know just kind of wrap it up here. Sure. Uh, with with this question, um, you know where you know as as you sort of look into your crystal ball mm-hmm. um you know where do you see technology uh, you know whether it's things like augmented reality um whether it is a a variation of social and sharing um you know where do you see it going in the next couple of years um where do you see museums going in the next couple of years as as it pertains to adopting and adapting to these technologies yeah, such a tough question. Uh-huh. Um, 
there's so many different directions that people can take and have taken so far. Um, I think, the, so in my opinion, where I'd like, like to see museums go is to focus on using technology as a tool to enable better visitor experiences. So I'd mm. like to see museums, rather than go for the shiny object um, that costs a lot of money, that people probably won't use, that's connected to a special exhibition that's just going to move on. Yeah, I'd ra- I'd rather see them look away from those and you know focus on you know making sure their mobile ticketing works so that people can buy their ticket on their phone and enter with with the utmost ease possible. Mm. Um, you know, uh, delivering content to people in a way that's not that doesn't take away from their interaction with the actual exhibits. Yeah, whether that's done through you know um, through uh, RFID tags that people can collect and then go home and use their VR headset to interact with the exhibits later or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, um, the reality is a lot of people visit museums to engage with the displays. That's and the so educators. true. Um, you know, people don't necessarily come to museums for a technology experience. Yeah. Um, you know, you say that it's, it's very interesting. I had this conversation with my brother the other day and not in the museum context, but I was yeah. telling him about, Canada's Wonderland that some of the rides you can go on and put on a Samsung VR goggle. Wow. Yeah. And and I was telling him I go you're on a roller coaster. Why are you now um isolating yourself? Yeah. You know I said why don't you just stay home and go on a roller coaster and and, and not experience the fair so to speak. Exactly. Yeah, why would you take yourself out of that experience? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's sure. very strange. But there's something to be said, I, th- I think, Ryan, about, um, you know, how, how can you get the museum to people? And, and I'm wondering if, if something like, you know, somebody, let's say, in Nunavut, having a ROM experience as a result of VR. Yeah. I mean, we've been on um, Google Earth Project for years, and... Part of the museum is street viewed, so people could do that really today if they wanted. Yeah. Wow! Um, you know, and, and Google's doing a lot of stuff with um, uh, it's called Google Expeditions, um, where you can build tours if you're holding museum street viewed and things like that. So, I mean, those experiences are there, and they're actually they're free, um, you know, for anyone to use. And, and we've we've built a few of them, but um, you know, for me, uh, you know, and I started out selling audio guides. Yeah. <laughs> so. You know, um, and, and, you know, people, visitors will always tell you, oh, I want an audio guide for this exhibition, but no one ever uses it. Hmm. And then people were like, we need an app for this exhibition. And museums built apps and no one ever used it. And, huh. you know, so, so it's interesting what visitors tell you they want and what they actually do. And all of the data shows that people aren't engaging with the technology that we deliver to them. So we need to find a way as museums to put foundational infrastructure in place that allows us to better deliver technology to people, maybe when they're off-site, mm-hmm. you know, the pre and post visit, Yeah. maybe not so much when they're on-site. So, uh, you know, I can't, I don't know what that will look like or, or, or what that is. There's lots of different 
ways that museums have tried that. I was at the World War II uh, Museum in, in New Orleans recently, and, and they gave they give everyone a, it looks like a Presto card. Works in a lot of the same way, and you can tap it on different keys as you go around the museum and hear the personal story of a different soldier in, in you know a different part of the service and, and what they went through during that conflict. So, you know, there's a and then after you leave, you get the whole you get an email with everything that you interacted with and all of the content that way. So there's there, that has existed for for a while, um, but I don't know how many people use that or actually find that valuable long term. So for me, it's really about making the visitor experience the best possible experience that it is, and giving people. Uh, uh, you know, technology that they have already integrated into their lives, you know, those experiences that they've already integrated in their lives, whether it's, you know, Apple Pay or, um, you know, uh, the Starbucks app. I always keep coming to the Starbucks app or, mm. or you know, the weather app. So those, you think about those apps that you use on your phone on, you know, a daily basis or a weekly basis, and how can we insert the museum into those everyday experiences? That's uh, that's the the sixty thousand dollar question, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely, um, it's it's and it's so difficult because everything changes every day. Yeah, there's new there's new things coming about, but um, you know there and there are lots of um, VR and and AR experiences at museums around the world these days, and and, you know um, as a as a history history buff and a history major and you know I'm, I question those experiences why would you want to take people out um, take their eyes off of the things that are on display and, and put them in one of those experiences um, it just it just seems counterintuitive to me but um, you know some people want that experience so it's it's always a juggling act to, to you know figure out what people want and and, uh, and you know hopefully <laughs> hopefully we make less uh uh, we get more right answers than wrong answers, but um, you know it's it's always going to be difficult. But for me, it's it's focused really on the visitor experience and making sure that we're we're giving people uh, what they need to make their visit enjoyable. Hmm. So come back. Yeah. Listen, Ryan. Thanks so much for spending this time with me. Anytime. Always good to talk to you. <laughs>